0: Um, if you've been kind of hanging out with us, you know we're, we're working through Job. I think this is week six. We only have three more. And you might be saying, oh, thank God, we only have three more weeks. Someone said this morning, oh, you're speaking on Job again. I said, yes, it's a great time to catch up on a nap. <laughs> oh, I'm just joking. Um, we're going to jump right into Job 13 today. Job 13, 1 to 19. Look, I have seen all this with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears, and now I understand. I know as much as you do. You're no better than I am. As for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. As for you, you smear me with lies. As physicians, you are worthless quacks. If only you could be silent. That's the wisest thing you could do. Listen to my charge. Pay attention to my arguments. Are you defending God with lies? Do you make your dishonest arguments for his sake? Will you slant your testimony in his favor? Will you argue God's case for him? What will happen when he finds out what you are doing? Can you fool him as easily as you fool people? No, you will be in trouble with him if you secretly slant your testimony in his favor. Doesn't his majesty terrify you? Doesn't your fear of him overwhelm you? Your platitudes are as valuable as ashes. Your defense is as fragile as a clay pot. Be silent now and leave me alone. Let me speak and I will face the consequences. Why should I put myself in mortal danger and take my own life in my own hands? God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I am going to argue my case with him, but this is what will save me. I am not godless. If I were, I could not stand before him. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. Hear me out. I have prepared my case. I will be proven innocent. Who can argue with me over this? And if you prove me wrong, I will remain silent and die. Another uplifting passage from Job. I mean, there's, there's some gold nuggets in there, though, that you could use on people, right? Uh, as for physicians, you are whack, worthless quacks. Yeah, maybe Job is teaching us how to argue, well, I don't know. But throughout, throughout the book of Job, there's kind of this search for truth, right? Um, throughout the story, Job is holding to his innocence, right? He claims that he is on the side of truth, that he says, I haven't done anything. Well, his friends tell him over and over again that he must be wrong, he must be wrong, We've said it a few times, right? You did something, or maybe your kids did something, or maybe your donkey did something. But somebody did something somewhere along the line, and that's why this is happening. And Job tells his friends that the truth they are sharing isn't truth. He calls it lies. He accuses them of defending God with lies, with untruth. And yet I find that the things that his friends say, I often say too. So maybe I need to look at that. Truth is, is a difficult concept for us. And unfortunately, English is such a limiting language, right? Um, like, it's, it's difficult to understand, and it's a really difficult concept to shove into those, those five letters. Is there five letters? Yes, five letters. Right, the Oxford Online Dictionary defines truth as that which is true in accordance with fact or reality, That which is true in accordance with fact or reality. What is really interesting is at the bottom of of online dictionary, there's words that are similar. And you know what it says? The gospel. And the gospel truth. Interesting, right? Last week, there was this disturbance outside. Lisa came running in and said, Kevin, you need to come outside quick. Something's happening. You know, things happened. So I was expecting, you know, something big. And there was a man out there yelling the truth at people. The gospel. They were very aggressive. They were pretty unkind in their approach. Um, They were pretty mean. As they told people about the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ. And on top of that, their impending burning for eternity in the lake of fire prepared for the devil. Interesting. (laughs) The person... They might have spoke some facts or truth as according to the online dictionary, but I would say none of it was truth. Zero. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and that's the concept of truth that I'm actually thinking of this morning when I'm talking. Not based on facts, scientific, empirical methods. Truth that is bound in Christ. It is something that flows from God. Right? It's the part of the character of God, truth. And because it's rooted in God, it must be tied to love because love is rooted in God. So truth cannot be absent from love or it's just not truth. It might be fact, but not truth. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I am a resounding gong or a tinkling cymbal. Resounding gong or a tinkling cymbal. I wondered if somebody read that passage and started the gong show. <laughs> it's funny. The, the person that I encountered last week was a gong and a tinkling cymbal, right? You know what happens when someone tinkles a cymbal long enough? Man, it gets annoying. It does. Truth is life-giving. Jesus is, is the way, the truth, and the life, Right? And the truth that Job's friends were were spouting wasn't life-giving. The truth that this person was saying this week was not life-giving. I know often people will say, truth hurts. And there is some truth to that. Can I use that? But more often than not, when someone says that, it seems that the person that says that really likes the pain they inflict on people by telling them truth. So the truth that I want to talk about includes action. It isn't about correct language, correct um, yeah, verbiage. But like most concepts that are bigger than us, it includes searching. It's not something we can completely grasp. It's something that eludes fully, comp- like fully figuring out. And, and I wonder if that's the biggest difference in Job's truth and what his friends are offering. His three friends are sure of their answers. They know. And yet, when, God, when Job goes to God, he asks why over and over again. Why? You know that the narrative of our scriptures is often that those who are outside seem to know more. Right? Right? The, the prophets of the Old Testament are people who are outside of society. One was lying naked on the ground for, I think, six months. Right? It's kind of outside of society. Um. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus praising those who aren't even Jewish for their faith. He's, he, he praises the Canaanite woman, the Roman centurion. And he uses parables that place the Jewish enemies as heroes, like the, the good Samaritan, the, Feri, uh, the tax collector over the Pharisee. And, and the interesting thing about all these stories is that those who knew the truth didn't think they knew it. And those that think they knew the truth didn't seem to act like they knew it. You know, Job is neither a Jew nor a Christian. In fact, some rabbinic literature goes as far as to call Job the prophet of the Gentiles. It says in Job 1.1, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Uz is east of the chosen land. It's east of where God's people lived. Isn't that incredible, right? Our scriptures seem to be a record of God and his chosen people. Right? If you follow it through. It's the story of God and how he cares for his chosen people. And yet the first book written, they think Job is the first book written, is about a person that isn't part of the chosen people. Job is an outsider seeking truth, and his friends seem to be insiders who seem to think they have a hold on the truth. So I wonder if truth requires humility. And that's why outsiders get it. We see this in Jesus, right? He's the truth. He becomes an outsider. They even kill him outside of town. So I wonder if Job actually teaches us more about humility than he does about patience. Job doesn't actually seem that patient to me. Actually, he seems kind of angry, but he's humble. He, he knows that he is not in charge. He recognizes that he is creation and not creator. And he doesn't try to take the spot of creator. In Job 10, 8 to 12, he says, You formed me with your hands. You made me. Yet now you completely destroy me. Remember that you made me from dust. Will you turn me back to dust so soon? You guided my conception and formed me in the womb. You clothed me with skin and flesh, and you knit my bones and sinews together. You gave me life and showed me your unfailing love. My life was preserved by your care. He knows his place. He's dust. And he's going to go back to dust. He's not in any delusion that he is in charge of things. He's creature, creature, not creator. Job seems to think that his friends have forgotten who they are and who God is too. They begin to speak God, for God. They begin to speak on behalf of God and Job responds, will you argue God's case for him? It's a good question to ask each other, right? Eh? Will you argue God's case for him? It's such a beautiful question actually and maybe one we should ask each other and ourselves. Will I argue God's case for them? It seems backwards, but it seems to me as I get a little bit older, it seems that the more we know God, the more that we know that there's much more to know about God. For us, mystery isn't that we can't know something, but that we can know something deeper and deeper and deeper, but never reach the bottom of it. And mystery helps to keep us humble, right? I love standing beside the ocean. Any other people that love standing beside the ocean? Yeah. It makes me feel small. Right? The ocean's so big, there's so much we can't see that we can't figure out. It's good. It helps us to feel humble. And maybe that's what we need to have a better handle on truth. Is to know that we don't have a good handle on truth. And while Job searches for the truth, we see him encounter another big difficult thing. right? And that is the idea of fear. Doesn't His Majesty terrify you? Doesn't your fear of him overwhelm you? Proverbs 1 7 says, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Job speaks about fearing God, but at the same time, he's willing to argue with God. If we read further this morning, he goes right into arguing with him. This must be like our experience of being by the ocean, right? It's big and overwhelming. And yet, I love to be beside it. I think that's the kind of fear they're talking about it. Job's fear isn't the same as his friend's fear. I would suggest that, that Job's fear is awe, while his friends are actually afraid. And it causes them to miss out on who God is. Job understands his place in creation. He is awestruck by God the Creator. I would say that's a healthy understanding of the fear that Job is talking about. But often when I hear the word fear, I think it's kind of unhealthy. We see this actually in in the early, in the first story in the the Old Testament, right? Um, In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're hanging out with God, and then they decide to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what's their response? What's their first response? They hide. Says in Genesis three, eight to ten, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Hmm. They hid from God because they were afraid. They perceived that God would be angry and violent. And yet what we see is a beautiful response from God. Adam and Eve experienced shame as a consequence. That was the consequence of what they did. And something that they and all of humanity now struggles with. And God could have sat back and said, you made your bed, now sleep in it. It's usually what we do. But instead they fashioned clothes to cover the shame to cover their nakedness. Actually, this, this is a great example of the whole theme of, of Job, right? Of the idea of free will and how God interacts with us in the middle of struggle. See, I don't think God purposes suffering or tragedy or trauma. They just repurpose it. As we, as we ponder this question of, of evil and suffering, we might begin to get a view of God. Right? And it might go like this. God creates and it's good. God loves and desires not to be blindly obeyed. So people are given free will. Free will allows for people to make choices that harm each other in creation. And then God takes the mess, reshapes it, and continues to love. That's what we see in that first story of Adam and Eve. What a, what a beautiful concept of God. And I wonder if Job must have experienced this. He must have known this about God. He experienced the reshaping of hurt, and so he does not fear in an unhealthy way. You know that our bodies have this interesting response. I'm going to say crazy. This crazy response to fear. They call it fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So the fawn is the new one if you haven't heard that, right? So fight is when your body feels that it's in danger and believes that you can overpower the threat. You respond in fight mode. Your brain signals the body, preparing it for physical demands of fighting. And so you, these things might happen. You might get a tight jaw, grinding your teeth. The urge to punch someone or something. A feeling of intense anger. A need to stomp or kick. Flight. Flight is if your body believes that you cannot overcome the danger, but can avoid it by running away, you'll respond in flight mode. So a surge of hormones, like adrenaline, give your body the stamina to run from danger. Right? What happens to your body there? Excessive fidgeting, tense feeling, trapped, constantly moving your legs, feet and arms, restless body, feeling of numbness in your arms and legs, and dilated eyes. You're ready to run. And then there's freeze and fawn. They're both stresses, but they don't involve actions. So freeze is when a response causes you to be stuck in place. This is what happens to me when I'm on heights. I don't want to move. I just This response happens when your body doesn't think you can fight or flight. And then fawn is a response that after unsuccessful flight, fight, flight, or freeze. The fawn response occurs primarily in people who grew up in abusive situations. And it becomes over agreeing, trying to please the thing that is scaring them or they're afraid of. Fear causes us to do weird things. And, and it seems to me that even though those are physical things, I feel like in our faith life, we have these same responses to Fear. Have you ever seen those responses? Have you ever seen someone in fight mode? Try challenging their orthodoxy. Try challenging someone's theology. I've seen people very angry, ready to hit people. Especially, you know, we see this in huge topics, especially right now we're seeing it in the the conversation on sexuality. All of these things. It comes into play when we question long-held beliefs. And that's why so many people right now are struggling with the idea of deconstruction. It's a word that keeps coming up. Right? They're afraid. Did you know that there are more than 140 verses in the Bible that say, do not be afraid? I think it's 145, actually. And every time a messenger is sent from God, the first words they say out of their mouth, do not be afraid. So so here's the tough question. How do we fear God and not be afraid? I can't answer it. I just, it's a question. But I do think that the answer is found in Jesus, right? Job doesn't, obviously doesn't know Jesus. Jesus is pretty, you know, far down the line. But he points to him without even knowing. He says this in Job 19, 25. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. What a prophetic word, eh? My Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And there's a lot of debate on what Job is referring to, but most conclude that Job sees God as both judge and Redeemer. He feels that God will come to his aid. Gustavo Gutierrez, who I talked about a couple weeks ago, says this, it might be said that Job, as it were, splits God in two. And produces a God who is judge and God who will defend him at the supreme moment. A God whom he experiences almost as an enemy, but whom he knows at the same time to be truly a friend. It would be like walking, going into court, facing God as the judge, and then up beside you walks God, your defender, your attorney. If we look, at, if we look at back at the story of Adam and Eve, we see this play out fully, right? Adam and Eve experience God as the judge. They run away. There are consequences for their actions, and there's consequences for actions. There just are. There are ripples from thrown stones that we don't know how they affect things. And yet they also experience God as the redeemer who covers their shame. That's another mystery for us to explore, something we can think about. Like it's another ocean to stand beside. God is judge, but they do not judge like I do. God is a redeemer. He's the bringer of justice. But their justice is very different than my idea of justice, where people get what they deserve. In some ways, this could all be summed up. I should have done this at the beginning. Then you wouldn't have had to listen to me for 20 minutes. It could all be summed up, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice and these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and its justice and they will be added to you. Seek first truth and its justice. thats To me, that's truth and fear. Justice has a lot to do with fear. And these things will be given to you. Let me, let me pray with you and then let's have some response. God, thank you for this day, I thank you for that sun, that shining, that reminds us of your faithfulness, of the truth that you hold all things together. Remind us of that, Amen. Is there any responses this morning?
1: Yeah, I was struck by everything you said and uh, the verses from Job and Genesis. Now, in Genesis, the line. I was afraid because I was naked. So I had. Now. And then you commented, you know, now we we clothe ourselves to hide our nakedness. <laughs> now, what if in that line from Genesis we replaced the word naked with vulnerable? And imagine, or wonder, in what ways do we? cover or cloak are other forms of vulnerability. And how does that relate to the idea of, uh, you know, the f- fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, and the idea of deconstruction?
0: Hmm. That's a good question, vulnerability. I, I totally agree that it, it actually could be replaced with that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Jeremy.
2: Um, I was thinking about <clears throat> some of the thoughts that you had with regards to, um, to deconstruction and how certain people can get really angry when you begin to question certain pieces of their doctrine or dogma. Some of it, I think you're right, is about fear, but at risk of sounding like a broken zillennial record, I think a lot of it is also rooted in power. I think with certain forms of authority, uh, especially uh, spiritual and theological authority, the right questions can serve to undermine certain forms of illicit spiritual power. And I think a lot of people who have these sorts of questionable doctrines they might not know that consciously, but I think they see it subconsciously. And the funny thing about, I find, when somebody has power is that they, they are unwilling to give it up. And so I think that's maybe why there's a lot of heightened emotion around deconstruction, because what I think is a natural part of one's spiritual formation is making one's faith their own. And that involves asking a lot of hard questions that, frankly, I think a lot of people in power and people in leadership are unwilling to give space for because that risks them losing some of their power and influence. And it makes me wonder whom they're serving at that point. Are they serving God or are they really serving themselves? And I think those are are questions that the church at large could really benefit from reflecting on as well as holding space for the questions of, of anybody who, who has them.
0: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, thank you. That's, that's good. Uh, I just thought about Matthew twenty twenty six. but it should not be like this with you. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Um, the power dynamics even in the church are not always healthy. They need to be challenged. I, I love... That Paul challenges Peter. Peter's the head of the church. Calls him out. I love it. I think that's good. We need those examples.
2: Yeah. Um, when, when you um, quoted the verse about, will you argue God's case for him? Mm-hmm. That made me think of um, apologetics. And um, the people who are, who are, very involved that isn't the right word but anyway in in making god's case for him and um, just the verse before says are you defending god with lies do you make your dishonest arguments for his sake will you slant your testimony in his favor and uh... just made made me think that we need to be we need to be cautious we need to be careful of thinking that we're arguing god's case for him
0: uh-huh. that's good
3: a couple of things, um, <clears throat> I think Genesis is a, a picture of people taking actions that were clearly, uh, they were made aware that they shouldn't do. The Book of Job for me is dealing with ideas and he is an iconoclast in that we all have a collection of beliefs, like us four here could have a belief right here, but if one of us said you know I really think that if God can't find human hands to say plant a forest along the border of Russia and Ukraine then I will plant new seeds and make a forest a mile wide and a thousand miles long. That might sound crazy but it might be an idea that I have that I pray about and others may not. They might think it's crazy to do that. And I think Job is a picture of trying to help us come out of our caves, come out of our ways of thinking or seeing God in a, in a different way than, he's already, than the way that the majority have seen him. And he's saying, I think there's more to him than us just trying to get everything right and do everything in a special way. And... And I think he knows he's loved. He knows he's not godless. So for me, it's <clears throat> he's teaching about desire he, in that strange way that he's longing for something more and bigger than what he's already understood.
0: Okay, so I know there's a couple more comments. Maybe let's, let's have conversations after. Um, grab some coffee and continue to talk. Um, go in the grace and the peace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.